With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Fleet Matthews radio show. Thank you for listening in wherever you are around the world. We've got part two uh, with this amazing uh, scientist of thought and mind, uh, Dr. Glenn Sapersky. Uh, his primary vocation is helping people, organizations, and our society as a whole avoid disaster through science-based decision-making and emotional and social intelligence. His book is The Truth Seeker's Handbook, a science-based guide, and it's absolutely amazing, so much so that we decided to do a three-part series. This is part two uh, of that series uh, on uh, the amazing uh, work and research in this book that will help us uh, uh, overcome uh, our uh, autopilot uh, ways of thinking and become more intentional uh, and strategic in our thinking. Welcome back, Dr. Glenn Sapersky. Hey, Philippe. It's a pleasure to be on, and thanks so much for having me. <laughs> You're absolutely welcome. And so let's dive right in if we can. And that is, uh, we left off talking about collaborative truth seeking and um, I was going through some of the chapters uh, with you. Uh, I think there's about 51 chapters total in the book. (laughs) And the next piece that I wanted to talk to you about was how to talk to professional colleagues who deny the facts. So, you know, part one and part of it is that we have to first and foremost uh, learn how to not deny the facts for ourselves and overcome our various different biases uh, as it relates to that, but something that is very difficult to do uh, would be uh, to deal with people, particularly in business, and, and that uh, have a level of accountability that uh, are denying the facts and, and uh, can't see the forest for the trees, as the old saying goes. Talk to us about that. Sure. So, yes, the first part of the uh, series dealt with how to recognize the facts yourself and avoid thinking errors through my book, The Truth Seekers Handbook, A Science-Based Guide. And now we're focusing more on how to talk to others. So we started that conversation in the previous part of the series. Now we're going on to how to convey to others how to avoid denying the facts. And this is a surprisingly common occurrence. There was a four-year study by Leadership IQ, which found that 23% of CEOs who got fired did so because they denied reality, meaning that they refused to recognize negative facts about the organization's performance. And this happens at all levels of the organization. So this is a really something that's really common, surprisingly common. And this goes on because of the autopilot system. So we, with our gut intuition, with our gut reaction, we don't want to face uncomfortable facts. We feel bad about them. And thus, we ignore them and we are not willing to deal with them, and how do we deal with colleagues who are ignoring these facts? So there are some specific problems that we have to keep in mind. There's a phenomenon called confirmation bias, which shows that we tend to look for and interpret information in ways that conforms to our beliefs. So if, you know, if your boss 
thinks that you know he's all great and nothing can go wrong under him, he would tend to inter ignore information that would indicate things would go wrong under him. And another phenomenon is the backfire effect, where in efforts to correct misinformation among our colleagues can actually worsen the situation. They can worsen their uh, commitment to negative information, to ignoring the information that you present to them, and of course they can be bad for your relationship. So I just want to talk about some of the problems before talking about the solutions. Wow. Um, that's that's a, a daunting task of dealing with people who basically are in denial. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, you know, how do, how do you circumvent that? Where would you even begin uh, to, to do that, especially with confirmation bias? Confirmation bias is a very strong and powerful uh, bias. Um, what can you know someone do uh, to begin helping someone else, particularly if that someone else is your boss uh, or manager or someone that's in you know super supervisory position? How would you how would you handle that? Yeah, so the first thing to recognize is to have a charitable mindset and understand that you know, it, that person is not intentionally ignoring the facts. It's that person's emotions that are blocking that person, blocking him from recognizing the facts. And that's the first step to recognize. And you need to figure out what emotions are blocking that person from recognizing the facts. So I often do consulting for corporations and speaking and consulting for corporations and business leaders of various sorts. And this is one of the areas I speak about and consult on, how to address emotional blocks recognizing the facts. And the key here is to use the skill of empathy, which is the skill of understanding other people's emotions. Now, uh, in the book, I describe the case of Mike. Uh, he was the head of a new development, product development team in a software company for which I consulted. And so he set a pretty ambitious goal for a product launch and for launching the new product, and more and more problems kept coming up with the product, but he refused to move the launch date because he saw it as a sign of weakness. So this perception of moving the product launch date, delaying it as a sign of weakness, was the emotional block. He was a new head of this team, so he had said this perceived himself as a strong leader and he had the false belief that strong leaders don't change their minds, that they are consistent, they don't change their minds, and they stick with what they previously said. And so even though other people in the team were questioning, increasingly questioning the product launch date, the very ambitious one, he refused to give in. So that is what you need to realize. You need to look at the situation, what is happening with Mike, why is he refusing to move this launch date? So that's the first step. Then you need to, once you understand the emotional block, and then you need to establish shared goals for yourself with Mike. So in that, in, with your boss, with your supervisor. So you know, as a consultant, kind of, I was in a subordinate position to Mike here. So I talked to Mike and I spoke about how we both want him to succeed as a leader in the long term, kind of. So very important, want him to succeed. And we want the new, we had the shared goal of having the product be profitable for the company. So two shared goals, you know, pretty clear goals. Mike was totally on board with those goals. So that's the second step. 
uh, and this is a part of a broader process that I forgot to mention called eGrip. Emotions, goals, rapport, information, positive reinforcement. So eGrip has five, it's an acronym of five steps. So that's the first of the two steps. Then you want to build rapport. So build rapport with Mike or your boss. You want to practice mirroring. And building rapport is essentially establishing trust. So you practice mirroring, use the same phrases, use the same emotions, echo the emotions that your supervisor is talking about. So with Mike, I echoed emotions uh, where he was sharing concerns that other people on the team were undermining him as a new leader. And so that was a problem that he was talking about. And I, you know, I echoed that and I validated his emotions. I didn't say he was right as they were trying to undermine him, but I said, by validation, I mean, I totally understand where you're coming from. You know, it must feel uh, scary and anxiety-inducing to be a new leader and to feel like you're being undermined. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of approach. That's what I mean by validating emotions, not saying that the emotions are wrong. Then after you do those three things uh, the, of e-group, emotions, goals, rapport, that's when you bring in information that might be a bit challenging. So here, uh, I steer the conversation with Mike toward how research shows one of the really important signs of being a strong leader is the ability to change your mind based on your evidence. So I was appealing to Mike's desire to be a strong leader. I was just showing him that his previous conception of a strong leader was not uh, rich enough and was not fully in line with what strong leaders do. And I gave, I shared some stories. Stories are a good way of conveying information uh, to people who are in these positions. So our mind is very attuned to stories. I told him about Alan Mulally, who is famous for saving Ford Motor Company through repeated changes, of course. And so as an example and other examples. So if I led with this information, Mike might have felt threatened. But at this point, we built up rapport. I understood his emotions. We had shared goals, so it was totally understandable. And he was very comfortable with it. And then I asked Mike where he can show the skill of changing his mind in the most effective manner and show those people who are trying to undermine him or what he thought were trying to undermine him that what a strong leader he is. And so he, at that point, kind of very naturally went toward delaying the product launch. And so that's, you know, I didn't really have to prompt him much on that. And then the last step of eGrip is the P, positive reinforcement. So you want to possibly reinforce that person for changing his mind in order to, for them to establish and have positive emotions about changing their mind. So that is the last step of eGroup. And you want to establish the positive reinforcement both for the sake of your relationship and so that you don't have to have these conversations with people like Mike, you know, all the time mm -hmm. on future occasions. Excellent. Excellent. Now, uh, in, in um, section three of the book, uh, you talk about truth-seeking as it relates to civic life. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the first chapters in there is you talk about the myth of the uh, irrational voter. Um, mm -hmm. uh, talk to us about what, what is an irrational voter. Sure. So irrational, by definition, the definition of irrational that is used in the scholarship and in popular literature is a person who has false beliefs who believes falsehood. So an irrational voter is a voter who believes in falsehoods in the political sphere. So I, things like being moved by emotions and ignoring facts and uh, 
people who are biased and make bad decisions and so on. And there, there is very many people who say that voters are inherently rational. They shouldn't be selecting leaders that we have, you know, democracy is a bad system and they need to be manipulated into selecting the right quote unquote leaders. And so that's, that's a very common thing that you'll hear people talking about. Now, this is a problematic perspective because while voters definitely make errors and they have irrational beliefs, beliefs based on falsehoods, they are not inherently rational. So that's the error uh, that many people make when they assume that voters are just inherently rational and just need to be manipulated into making the quote-unquote right decision. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's plenty of research, which I describe in my book, The True Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide, which specifically describes how we can overcome these thinking errors, how we don't have to simply go with our guts. If politicians are trying to appeal to our base emotions, we can notice that. We can learn to notice that and address these emotional appeals and prevent them from influencing us and driving us to make decisions in the polling booth that are go against our actual interests. So we don't want to make those decisions. We don't want to believe in lies, obviously. So there are a number of uh, ways that we can encourage voters to make sure that they don't believe lies and they are grow more rational. They have accurate and true beliefs. So this is something that we can definitely do. Now, just to be clear, this is something that needs to be done and have us go against our natural intuitions. For mm-hmm. example, many people tend to uh, vote for a person who looks quote-unquote presidential. So there are lots of studies that show that people who look more physically appealing get votes, and people who are quote-unquote likable get votes. Now, let's be honest. A person who is likable or who looks physically attractive, that doesn't tell us anything about mm-hmm. this person's ability to govern. It doesn't mm-hmm. tell us anything about this person's ability to have good policy and help ensure that we are going as a country in the right direction. So naturally, our natural intuitive state is to be rational. That's just the natural baseline for us as human beings. But we can grow more rational. We don't have to be manipulated. And my aspiration, one of the things I want to do, why I want to help accomplish in the world with this book, The Truth Seeker's Handbook, a science-based guide, is to show people how to grow more rational themselves and also how to help those around them grow more rational in politics, business, and all other life areas. Fantastic. Now, you also talk about the worst problem in politics. Uh, Define that because it's multiplicable, but what is the worst one? Right. So that's kind of the other aspect of uh, voter irrationality, that people are very easily manipulatable. So it's very easy to manipulate people who don't have training in rational analysis, in rationality, and how do we differentiate lies from falsehoods. So for example, uh, if we, there was a poll uh, by Qualtrics in December 2016 that showed that uh, over half of Donald Trump's supporters believed that he won the popular vote. Now, in reality, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by over 3 million people, uh, by over 3 million votes. But Donald Trump multiple times falsely claimed that he won the popular vote. So most of his supporters believed him 
in spite of the actual reality of the situation. And there are so many other cases, you know, the, where these sorts of things come up, where people believe falsehoods. They simply don't believe the facts. So that comes from people being easily swayed by the psychology of persuasion. And mm -hmm. politicians are really skilled at persuasion. Some are more skilled than others. You know, we can talk about uh, various politicians who have more skills, more charisma, more ability to influence their audience and get them to believe falsehoods. So that's a really dangerous problem for the future of our country. And we've seen that more and more now, especially with the spread of fake news. So people, because uh, people are increasingly getting their news from social media, that is more of, more of a problem. We can talk about that later in the book, which I delve more, in, more into these things. But that is a big problem. And this is something that we need to actively work against, to not go with our natural intuitions, avoid going with our natural instincts, because otherwise we'll make really bad decisions and undermine the future of our country. So, so uh, you know, the thinking area, the thinking errors uh, uh, that you talk about in the book, the biases, really can cause us to misinterpret. Uh, politics because we can't really see clearly because we're not seeing through a clear lens, uh, a clear and rational thinking. That's exactly right. Yes. So it can cause us to really undermine the political system in a number of ways. So one of these ways is called the halo effect. So the halo effect is a thinking error that when we see something we like, then we have positive associations with this halo thing, with the, this thing. When we, the other side of it is the horns effect. So when we see something that we don't like, we associate negative emotions with something we don't like. And I gave uh, an example in the book how, uh, if folks remember the debates between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, one of the things she said about Donald Trump was saying that he is Putin's puppet. Now that was an easy way of invoking the horns effect, because most people in the United States don't like Donald, don't like uh, Putin, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, and saying that Donald Trump is Putin's puppet associates the horns effect, our dislike of Vladimir Putin, with Donald Trump. So that's an, that's an example of how the horns effect was brought up in that situation. Wow. So that's an example of Hillary Clinton. Now, going to Donald Trump, there's another phenomenon called the illusory truth effect. So the illusory truth effect is the phenomenon where if a lie, a false statement is repeated often enough, it becomes true. It becomes seen as true. Why does that happen? Well, we talked earlier about the autopilot system, which is our emotional intuitive system of thinking. Now, the autopilot system reacts to new information. And if you, the first time that something is said that is a falsehood, it reacts to it strongly. It reacts, no, wait, is that right? You know, kind of, we have a strong surprise reaction. The more often it's said, the less of a surprise reaction we have, the less of a concerned reaction we have, the less anxiety we feel about it. So because we have a smaller emotional reaction to it over time, it, we become more comfortable to, with it. And the, 
big problem with us as human beings, because we evolved in the savannah environment, we didn't evolve for the modern world, is that we mistake this feeling of comfort for truth. Mm. So again, we mistake comfort for truth, and that's a very, very bad and problematic error that we make. And mistaking comfort for truth undermines us in all areas of life, politics, business, personal relationships, health, and so on. And uh, you know, when we mistake the eating uh, a second piece of chocolate cake that is comfortable to us for the truth, meaning that that's something we should do. Mm-hmm. And that's an example. Mm-hmm. Right. So the illusory truth effect would be, you know, what someone repeats the something. It's called, it's called illusory the illusory, illusory truth. So the illusion of truth. So it's oh, a combination of illusion. Okay. Right. So it's called illusory truth with the combination. The first word is, you know, from illusion and the second is truth. So the illusory truth effect. And so Donald Trump, for example, repeated many, many times that NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, is the worst deal ever signed and cost Americans millions of jobs. So that's what he repeated many, 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 many times. And in fact, economists really don't really disagree with that. They completely disagree with his statement that it's the worst deal ever signed, cost Americans millions of jobs. There are many economists who say it overall helped the United States. Other economists who say it's, you know, it's a wash, you know, in some ways it helped, in some ways it didn't. No one, no economists at all say it cost Americans millions of jobs and it's the worst deal ever signed. So Donald Trump is making a false statement when he says it. Now, still, because he said it so often, people stopped being surprised by it and began to be more comfortable. And so right now, the American population, many people in the American population, believe that NAFTA is the worst deal ever signed or one of the worst deals ever signed, mm-hmm. despite that being a false statement. It's not the worst deal ever signed by far. So we can see where Donald Trump got this idea. And moreover, he got his supporters to believe a number of falsehoods around, similar to NAFTA, uh, mm-hmm. around the economic situation. So for example, if we polls of Donald Trump supporters show that they believe that the stock market grew worse under President Barack Obama and that the job rate, that the joblessness rate increased. Both of those statements are false. The stock market, in fact, grew much more under Donald, uh, under Barack Obama. So it, it rose to unprecedented heights. The stock market greatly improved. And the rate of joblessness really decreased from something like eight, eight point, I don't know, 0.5% to something under, to under 5%. That's a huge, huge decrease. A decrease of something like 40%, 30, 30, 40% under Barack Obama. And the stock market increased by a lot, you know, the highest ever point. But because Donald Trump was using the illusory truth effect and repeating false statements about NAFTA and other economic things, his supporters grew to below average, average or above average. There's, you know, studies show that something like over 90% say that they're over average drivers, they're above average drivers. Now we know that that's absolutely possible for uh, 90, over 90% to be above average. But that's what people say. So that's kind of, you know, one thing. Now there is another you know, interesting thing where if people are asked uh, how that they're 100% confident in something, 
how often are they actually right? Well, they're actually right about 80% of the time. So if you're asked, you know, would you bet the house on this? You'd lose the house 20% of your time, 20% of it. So imagine all of your friends, your family, you know, 20% of them losing their house because they're self-confident. That'll be pretty terrible. And, you know, we can see an example of when that happened in 2008 when people were very confident that house prices would keep going up and then they crashed and people lost, you know, many people lost everything, lost their savings, went bankrupt, really terrible. So I think those are some examples of how overconfidence impacts us very negatively in a whole lot of life areas. Now, overconfidence, you know, to go back to the car example, one of the big problems with driving is how many crashes there are. And a lot of crashes come from overconfidence. People think, oh, I can make that turn. Oh, you know, oh, I can cut into that situation. So cut in. So that's, again, a lot of overconfidence really impacts us negatively. And so it impacts us in politics as well, where we feel certain and confident about something. And we vote based on this confidence, even though that we should not be nearly as confident as we are. So let's talk about uh, one of the examples I brought up uh, in the book of raising the minimum wage. Democrats have a very strong idea that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour is something we should definitely do. Now, conservatives, on the other hand, think that that's a terrible idea, that we should not raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, that it's really, really bad, and that would you know, destroy the American economy, something like that. So that's one side. So we have liberals. So we have liberals really thinking one thing, conservatives thinking the other thing, and they are very confident. Both are very, very confident that they're right. Now, if we look at what economists say, who are actually experts on this topic, economists are much less confident that raising the minimum wage would either a improve the economy or b greatly harm the economy. Mm. So economists have a very complex and nuanced perspective. And they look at this issue and you know, they study it and they say, well, in some cases, raising the minimum wage would overall be helpful. In other cases, uh, raising the minimum wage would overall hurt the economy. So there's much more complexity and nuance to it. It depends on the geographical context. It depends on the industry and so on. So that's what economists say. Now, we are not experts. You know, I'm not an expert. You know, everyone who's listening to this show is not an expert unless you're an economist studying the minimum wage. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. But people will say very strongly that we should definitely raise the minimum wage and we definitely shouldn't raise the minimum wage without even looking at the analysis of economists. They just go with what the political candidates that they support say. But political candidates are not experts at economics. They're experts at getting elected. And if they're experts getting elected, then they're just going to say what their supporters want them to say. Uh So we have this really bad cycle where supporters of politicians are listening to politicians and politicians are telling their supporters what their supporters want to hear. Neither are listening to experts on this topic, you know, on the the economics. This is a really harmful cycle. And a lot of it comes from overconfidence that we tend to believe that whatever our opinion is, is the right opinion despite lots of research showing that we tend to be way too overconfident about our opinions. One of the phenomena that goes on here 
in addition to overconfidence is what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect shows that you know, the, if we know a little bit of information about a topic, we tend to become much more of a confident than we should be. So people who don't know anything about the minimum wage would not have a strong opinion on it. People who just read a little bit on the minimum wage would develop a pretty strong opinion on it, despite the way, despite uh, their not being nearly expert enough to develop a strong opinion on it. Now, when people read more and grow their expertise like economists, their, the strength of their confidence greatly decreases. So they become much less confident in their previous opinion. You know, you might have heard phrases like you know, famous people saying, you know, the more I know, the more I realize how much I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. So that's what happens in any sort of field. You know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And so if people who become expert in a field become less and less confident about what the right course is of action because they know about the nuances, the exceptions, the problems, the context. And you can think of that as in any area of life. You know, let's say you're a car mechanic. You know, you know um, the more you know about being a car mechanic, the more nuance you would have in your recommendations because you know the different cars have different things that you need to deal with and different makes, different models. You need to take things into consideration. Whereas a person who just has a little bit of you know mechanical expertise would be much more confident in making bad recommendations. Mm-hmm. So happens in all areas of life. So we need to be much less confident about our political beliefs as well as all other beliefs. And we need to be much more oriented toward deferring and looking at expert opinions in order to be more closely aligned with what reality is. That is excellent. Um, You also talk about, I I remember our first interview, you talked about uh, the power of pre-commitment after you have assessed and eliminated your thinking areas, and you talk about this in in the book, uh, but from a political perspective of pre-commitment uh, without evidence, uh, and how mm-hmm. worldview uh, can undermine uh, reason. Speak to us about that. Sure. So one of the problems with pre-commitment when we make a commitment is that it prevents us from changing our minds unless we have a strong desire to change your mind. So this is a big problem with pre-commitment as a phenomenon. So when we join an ideology, let's say Republican ideology or Democrat ideology, we can go with the previous example of uh, raising minimum wage or lowering minimum wage, we would not be willing to update our beliefs based on evidence if we pre-commit to the ideology, to the bigger belief system. Why is that? Well, if we question the ideology of raising the minimum wage, let's say, on one issue, then it would open up the questioning of the ideology on other issues. So it's much easier to not think hard and recommit to accepting the whole of the ideology that comes with being a Republican or a Democrat and not question any aspects of it, regardless of that being irrational in the sense that it doesn't align with what reality is like despite this ideology not aligning with reality. So this is a big problem. Now, uh, let's go to another example of climate change. This is what, uh, what, this is, what was, is being talked about in the book in the chapter that you mentioned. So people who pre-commit to climate change, let's say on the democratic side, there are many people who 
strongly believe that climate change is happening and that strongly is caused by humans. Now, on the Republican side, there's growing numbers of Republicans who believe that you know, climate change might be happening and uh, caused by humans, but still mm, there are very many Republicans who think that climate change is not happening or is not being caused by humans. So that is sort of very strange if you think about it, if you take a step back and you know, step away from the whole idea of climate change and you know, step back from this charged political issue. Then look at what it, look at what climate change is about. You know, look at any other issues. Let's say, you know, um, migration, migration of animal herds, you know, which is not a charged political issue. We can observe migration of animal herds. We can see what it's like, and we can actually determine. Okay, you know, here we can have some researchers follow animal herds and look at their past history and see what, where and how they have migrated. So now we know, okay, this is the migration of animal herds, this is what it's like. Climate change can be treated in exactly the same way. We have scientists who are experts in climate change. I mean, they just study this topic and they give some information. Okay, you know, this is what the temperature was like in the past and this is what it's now. This is, these are the factors that are causing, contributing to climate change and these are the factors that are not contributing to climate change. And then we can see if there's humans are, if they are contributing to climate change in, in some ways, if they're producing some gas or something like that that's causing climate change. And that can be completely separate from the political charged issue of what is climate change. That would be the ideal orientation if we care about reality, if we care about what is actually real, if we care about understanding what is the nature of reality, we just let the scientists go on with their thing and ignore or take out the political aspects of it and say, okay, you know, you're the experts, you find this stuff and we'll be looking at uh, your data and seeing what kind of policy we should shape based on the data. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. So for people who are uh, Democrats, there is a strong desire to preserve nature and there is a strong concern with climate change because it harms nature. So there's, the, you know, that's the kind of the ideological value-based things with Democrats. With Republicans, there is a strong concern with government intervention and there's a desire to prevent government intervention. So there is a strong investment in climate change not happening by human hands because then uh, presumably the government would need to intervene and address climate change in order to prevent us all from dying due to disasters caused by climate change. So it, either both sides have some ideological values that inhibit them from seeing reality clearly. Wow, absolutely amazing. You also uh, hit upon a very uh, charged, emotionally charged topic of terrorism and, and how do our biases um, deal with uh, terrorism and sex terrorism in, 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 in the country and in the world, domestically and foreign. Yeah. So one of the things I talk about in the book is an experience I had with uh, at Ohio State. So I teach at Ohio State, and there was a knife attack at Ohio State about just over a year ago now by a Muslim terrorist who rammed his car into some students and then jumped out and started waving a knife until he was shot. 
by police officers. So that's the situation. That's the baseline situation. It's pretty terrible. I had a, actually a research assistant who was pretty close to the knife attack, and you know, it caused me a lot of fear and anger over the knife attack. Now, being an expert in how our brain works, I know that fear and anger toward Muslims is just a natural reaction. It's a natural, emotional, intuitive reaction, but it's not a rational one. It's the autopilot system. It's very natural. Okay, you know, what's happening? There's someone who is from outside my tribe, the white male tribe, and this person happens to be Muslim. And uh, so my intuitive association is to associate Muslims with terrorism. And fear and anger are the driving forces that cause this association. However, is that rational? Well, let's look at what is actually rational, which is kind of some, we need to bring in math into this. I know many people math is scary, but it's really not that bad. <laughs> so, in, uh, so this was a Somali Muslim. And if we look at what were Somali Muslims doing overall statistically in regard to terrorism, and we can see that in 2015, the year before the attack happened, there were no Somali perpetrators of terrorism in the United States. And in 2016, there was only one perpetrator of Somali terrorism in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that shows that this thing with this guy was incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. That there's a Somali who perpetrates terrorism. This, and unfortunately, you know, politicians came out and said, oh, you know, there have been significant terror problems with Somali immigrants over the past several years. Well, they, there was actually, that, that was a statement by Representative Peter King, congressperson in Long Island. And that's uh, an, an unfortunate statement because it's false. There has been no significant terror problems with, in the U.S. Uh, with Somalis. So it was a false statement and it was meant to appeal to emotions of fear and anxiety and get this guy political support. So other politicians started criticizing Muslims. So the state treasurer of Ohio, Josh Mandel, tweeted, looks like radical Islamic terror came to my alma mater today. Now, if we actually look at, you know, let's talk about Islamic, ter- Islamic terrorism. Mm-hmm. Now, if we look at what happened with this person uh, who perpetrated the knife attack, his name was Abdul Razak Ali Artan. He when uh, if we look back at his evidence of what was actually his motivations, he expressed fear of Islamophobia in an August 2016 interview with the Ohio State newspaper, and he expressed anger in a Facebook post right before the attack, saying, I'm sick and tired of seeing my fellow Muslim brothers and sisters being killed and tortured everywhere, and I can't take it anymore. Now, these statements aren't about radical Islamic terror. Mm-hmm. That's not what they're about. They're about fear and anger over the treatment of Muslims. They have to think about where is the other person? Put yourself in his shoes. He's really afraid of what's happening in the United States with the treatment of Muslims by people like Josh Mandel and Peter King. Uh, And he is angry about it. So if he is fearful and angry about it, that's not a radical Islamic terrorism. That's a very human emotion, same human emotion we're experiencing toward him. So what would happen if we simply let, uh, if let these sort of feelings drive us? Well, then would, there would be more killings and more perpetration because if fear and anger is what drove Artan to engage in terrorism, 
then if we cause more fear and anger in Muslim communities, that would drive more Muslims to engage in terrorism. So it's a cycle of fear and anger, inspiring fear and anger, resulting in terrorism. But it's the fear and anger in the first place that are driving this terrorism. So what we need to do is break the cycle of fear and anger. Even though we feel fear and anger, we can't let, we can't act on these. And this mm-hmm. is kind of the same difference that you don't want to act on the impulse to take a third piece of chocolate cake. You know, you have a desire to take it. That doesn't mean it's the right thing to do for your health. Mm-hmm. And you might have a, des- and you might feel fear and anger toward Muslims, but it doesn't mean that uh, bashing Muslims like Peter King and Josh Mandel did are the right things to do for the sake of our safety and security. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's incredible. That was excellent. <clears throat> you also uh, go deeper. I mean, you go deeper into politics. You talk about, uh, <laughs> if you will, a future with Trump and and understanding the difference between truth versus comfort. What did you mean by that? Yes. So a future with Trump. Uh, so. That was an article written shortly after Trump's election, and there were a lot of people who were concerned about it, and I wanted to point out that, first of all, we didn't know what kind of a president Donald Trump will be. So he might be bad, he might be good, but we need to plan for whatever situation is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So we can you know, see if we can give Donald Trump a chance and evaluate what the situation will be based on his behavior. But it's going to be really dangerous and really problematic if we oh, if we don't account for either scenario, for him being a good president or him being a bad president. So there is a psychological phenomenon called the ostrich effect, which is an aspect of denialism, where we basically stick our head into the sand and uh, think that everything will go fine. That's one aspect of things. The other aspect of things is that we stick our head into the sand and think that everything will not go fine and behave based on our presumptions rather than evaluating the situation and changing our minds based on new information, based on the information of what Donald Trump is actually like as president. It might be comfortable and intuitive for those who opposed Trump before the election to oppose him now that he became president. It might also be comfortable and intuitive for those who supported Trump to support Trump after the election. Mm-hmm. We have good leadership from Barack Obama, who you know said shortly after Trump was elected, let's give him a chance and let's see what kind of a person he is, and you know hopefully he'll shape a good future for America. So at that time, you know what I was talking about in the article is the importance of evaluating information based on new evidence, not committing to either side, but being very comfortable with changing our minds based on new evidence of how Donald Trump actually is as president and how his administration shapes up. You know, uh, I remember hearing Dr. Phil say that uh, the best prediction of future behavior, predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Um, As it relates to (coughs) being a truth seeker, how how do you feel about that that's cold. Is it too generalized? So I would say that uh, the predictor of future behavior and past behavior applies in many ways, but I've seen, with, specifically with Donald Trump, I've seen him change in a number of areas. So, for example, he used to be 
supportive of women's right to choose. And then, you know, as he became, began to run uh, for the Republican nomination, he said that he was opposed to women's right to choose. And he changed his mind in a whole variety of areas. He used to be much more Democrat-leaning, and then he became much more Republican-leaning later in his life. So I would say that Donald Trump is a specific example of someone who changes his thoughts a number of times based on the situation. And, you know, so that, that was my point, that we can't predict what he's going to be like as president just simply based on the, his campaigning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what about moral character? You know, can, you know does moral character have uh, anything to do with uh, how someone is going to run the country after you kind of get an idea of how this person, uh, you know, perceives uh, various different populations, segmented populations within the country, how he perceives gender roles and issues differently. Um, do you think that uh, these these moral character uh, attributes um, affect um, politics and policy and, 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 and how uh, how he runs the country. Absolutely. I think they very much do. So there were a number of things about his behavior when he was campaigning that clearly showed he was willing to appeal to base emotions of his voters and rile and stir them up even um, when it would hurt the overall country. Polarize people, get them upset, saying, you know, and he was willing to spread falsehoods which is very much against what I believe. I very much believe in integrity. So I had a number of concerns about his moral character and his ability to run the country. But I honestly, I didn't know how he would behave as president. I hoped that he would um, change as he had a number of times. You know, I tend to be an optimist just as a person. So I had, a, I had hopes that he would change and be more presidential when he came to office, that he would, you know, lay off his Twitter, Twitter and not appeal to uh, the base emotions of his followers. I mean, go to the center, maybe meet the Democrats where they are, not try to do a lot of the things that he has ended up doing. And he's really disappointed me. I have uh, had more high hopes for him. Um, and so that, that would be my answer to the question. <laughs> okay. That's, no, that's excellent. So... Uh, let's talk about one of well, since we're talking about kind of the uh, character of the 45th and the administration of the 45th. Talk to us about the science of solving alternative facts, because uh, earlier you talked about um, the illusory truth uh, effect, um, which, uh, if done successfully, can alter facts uh, mm-hmm. and 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 cause a, a, a complete falsehood and then, you know, back it up with a confirmation bias and you're screwed, right? So talk to us about solving alternative facts and using science to do it. Sure. So alternative facts is um, a phrase that was created by Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump's advisor, when she was defending uh, Sean Spicer's false claim that uh, the White House inauguration under Donald Trump the audience for that was the biggest uh, audience ever. And mm-hmm. she said that, well, you know, you, you, the media might have your facts, but we have some alternative facts. And so she became 
widely condemned for suggesting that there's such a thing as alternative facts. But the problem with this condemnation was that people who condemned her had a strong value of caring for the truth, caring for facts. Mm. And they didn't realize that there were so many people around them, many among Donald Trump's supporters, who don't care nearly as much about what is the truth, what is the facts. And that is something uh, that's part of the false consensus effect in psychology, where we intuitively assume that other people share our emotional predisposition, mm-hmm. our values. So, and that's a big problem. You know, you might care about the facts, Philippe, and I might care about the facts, but we have to recognize that there are so many people out there who don't care about what the facts are, who don't care about what the truth is. They care much more about Donald Trump, let's say, being a folksy person who is, they would enjoy having beer with and who they can relate to. So they care much more about Donald Trump being relatable. Let's uh-huh. say that. Uh-huh. So that is, they trust him on a gut level, regardless of the actual facts of reality. And there have been a number of Donald Trump supporters who are saying that, well, my mind is made up and the facts don't matter. Literally, I'm quoting kind of uh, what they said. And we have to recognize that we live in a community, in a society where these people are a part of it and they determine what the future is. So we have to understand that that's where they're coming from. We can't just ignore their existence. We can't ignore that reality. We can't shut our ears and say, la, 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 this is not happening. That Mm -hmm. would be irrational. We have to recognize that that's where they're coming from. So in order to get people like that to understand the dangers of alternative facts. We can't just say the facts are the facts and that's it. When you need to believe the facts. We need to point out to them what are the actual dangers of alternative facts in ways that they can understand, in ways that they can hear and appreciate. We need to appeal to their emotions, their values, and see what they care about. So one of the things that many people care about uh, is corruption. It's, in fact, uh, government corruption has been shown to be the highest fear among Americans. The biggest fear, if you poll Americans, uh, that is going to be the biggest fear among Americans. Mm. It's not going to be snakes. It's not going to be public speaking. It's going to be corruption. So you can talk about the dangers of falsehoods to corruption. For example, uh, John Kerry, who was the Secretary of State uh, under, Donald, under uh, Barack Obama, said at an anti-corruption summit in May 2016 that corruption tears at the fabric of an entire society. And Barack Obama had the same sentiment. He took a series of steps to address government corruption through increased protections, regulations, of promoting transparency in business and politics. However, if we look at what Trump is doing right now and what he said he will do and he's actually doing is rolling back these regulations. Mm-hmm. rolling back these protections that the government has been doing to protect us by promoting transparency in business and politics. So Trump has been doing that in a number of ways. Which um, So for, there was a recent news story about how uh, there was a petition site called White House, White House Petition Site, where if a certain petition reaches over 100,000 votes, when you know, people can get to sign their petition. Barack Obama, you know, he started this program. He said the White House will issue an official response to that petition. Now, there were 17 of these petitions that reached 100,000 under Donald Trump, and Donald Trump ignored them. The Donald Trump White House ignored them. 
this is just one example of many, many examples where Donald Trump has been rolling back transparency, rolling back uh, protections on politics and business. And of course, if we don't have transparency, that facilitates corruption. That allows politicians to stuff their pockets, that allows businesses to uh, manipulate us, to put uh, whatever stuff they want in our food, because the FDA is not really monitoring what people are putting in, what what uh, businesses are putting in our food, and so on. So we can go into many aspects of things where it's really good to have transparency for business and politics, and where Trump's plans are undermining these this transparency and thus increasing corruption. That's one. The second is authoritarianism. People are really concerned about the few author, authoritarian future, and we are definitely seeing that with Trump. So Trump has many times attacked the news media. He has attacked the news media, saying, they're, oh, they're fake news, they're bad, you know, don't listen to them. Well, these are the things that authoritarian dictators have done in all cases where they took over the country as an authoritarian dictator after coming to power as the elected leader. If we look mm -hmm. at the, you know, all the way back to Mussolini and Hitler, and more recently people like Vladimir Putin and uh, Recep Erdogan of Turkey, they have started by attacking the news media. The second thing they've done is attack the election process, question election process undermined, and we see Trump doing the same thing. He claimed in the 2016 election that he actually won the popular vote falsely. He claimed there were millions of illegal votes cast for Hillary Clinton falsely. So there was absolutely no evidence found of millions of illegal votes. And now mm -hmm. he's running um, a voter inquiry to look at, you know, for evidence of the non-existent evidence of false, uh, of millions of illegal votes. And that's, of course, undermining the integrity of the election process. He's also getting, trying to prevent the government from investigating possible collusion between him and Vladimir Putin, Russia, you know, he fired James Comey, who was director of the FBI, who was investigating it. Now he's threatening to fire Mueller. So he's really undermining the integrity of the election process and the news media. So if we talk about these things, corruption and authoritarianism, that is going to be much more salient to people who don't care about truth and facts as a value in itself. So that's what we need to talk about if we want to reach people who don't care about truth, who don't care about facts. We need to talk about corruption and authoritarianism and point out how uh, lies and deceptions will inevitably lead to corruption and authoritarianism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You also talk about behavior, uh, the behavioral science and how it can help uh, truth uh, triumph over, uh, triumph over uh, baseless accusations. You know, there's, <clears throat> There's the new movement of the Me Too movement, um, which has become unprecedented in terms of um, women stepping up and stepping out and saying, "Hey, I was sexually harassed, and this is wrong," uh, and and uh, uh, it has literally uh, stopped the careers of many uh, of, of of the accusers. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the things that people are worried about is that. All you have to do now uh, is just accuse someone, and uh, without due process, without an investigation, uh, without some level of evidence, uh, uh, that uh, uh, it now becomes a base. You, you can really harm someone and, and, and completely rupture their life with a base, a baseless uh, accusation. Speak to us about that. 
Sure. So it's very easy right now, as you said, to make a baseless accusation and destroy people's lives as a result of it. So that's definitely something we should worry about, about how easy that's become. And that's one kind of sort of accusation. But mm -hmm. it's uh, coming from a base from the previous accusations by people like Donald Trump of uh, the news media being fake news and uh, other sorts of accusations without the need to support them and people believing these accusations. And so this mean, this uh, approach, this method in our society has come from the legitimation of baseless accusations as a means of undermining your opponents, mm -hmm. of undermining. So this is a very dangerous tendency that has been uh, popularized by the current president, unfortunately. I wish it wasn't the case. So as a way of, you know, we have the, pro, we have the Me Too movement, which, you know, has uh, been causing some problems. We have the accusations of news media being fake news and so on. And we have generally private citizens sharing fake news around very extensively. So if you look at the 2016 election, the three months before the 2016 election, uh, the top 20 real news stories uh, about the election got about 7 million engagements on Facebook. The top 20 fake news stories got 8 million engagements on Facebook. Mm. So fake news stories are getting more engagements than real news stories, which means they're seen by more people, partially, you know, because they're being boosted by people who are behind them, which is, you know, often Russia and its agents. So this is a really big problem for our society, for the truth is not being demanded. Facts aren't being demanded. People aren't being asked to cite their sources. They're just being believed on the word of it, and people are perceiving something as comfortable, as intuitively appealing to their emotions, and then they're sharing it, or they're believing the accuser, and this is very dangerous for the future of our society because where is the truth, where is the fact? So in order to address that, I and a group of other people have are launching the pro-truth movement at protruthpledge.org. So again, that's P-R-O-T-R-U-T-H-P-L-E-D-G-E.org. And the pro-truth pledge is a set of 12 behaviors that everyone can look at and see that they're oriented toward the facts. And I'll read a, read a couple of them so folks can understand what I'm talking about who aren't by their computers. So one is fact-check information to confirm it's true before accepting and sharing it. Another is reevaluate if my information is challenged and retract it if I can't verify. And a third is celebrate those who retract incorrect statements and update their beliefs toward the truth. And so, and there are nine more that are, you know, you look at them, you're like, yes, this is what it means to be truthful. So what we are seeking to do is have everyone in our society, all the private citizens, all public figures who care about truth and facts, to go to protruthpledge.org and sign the pledge. Take a minute to sign the pledge, to commit to truthfulness yourself, and encourage other people around you to commit to truthfulness. Now, there's a phenomenon called network effect, where if we engage in pro in beneficial good behavior, pro-social behavior, research shows that those around us will do so as well. So if we stop smoking, our spouse is about 67% uh, less likely to smoke. If 
so disorder, 67% more likely to stop smoking. If we stop smoking, our friends are about 30% more likely to stop smoking and so on. And so if we make take the approach of pledge and show these behaviors, model these behaviors, people around us will be influenced. That's one. Mm -hmm. Second, the more people take the approach of pledge, approach of pledge.org, private citizens, all the listeners to the show going to protruthpledge.org and taking the pledge right now, the more public figures will have an incentive to take it. And public mm -hmm. figures who take it. By the way, public figures is anyone who has an influence in the public sphere. I'm a public figure, Philippe is a public figure, politicians are public figures and so on. We have a number of politicians who took the approach of pledge as well as journalists and scientists and so on. So anyone, they have more of an incentive to take it because their information is sent around in occasional newsletters to all the people who signed the pro-truth pledge. And so they get a reputation boost, these public figures. And uh, people get to find out about what they do. And you know, people get to find out about Philippe's show or uh, the work of some journalist or some politician. And their reputation is really important to them. So mm -hmm. their reputation is boosted and they get to put also a pro-truth pledge banner um, a website seal on their website, just like the Better Business Bureau. So mm -hmm. they get a credibility booster. Now, they're being held accountable by the private citizens who signed the pledge. They are you know, volunteers who are private citizens who signed the pledge, can hold these public figures accountable, make sure they're sticking to these behaviors. So it's, it's a combination of behavioral science with crowdsourcing, where people are crowdsourcing fact-checking, and all the public figures they're not going to go and say, no, that, that, you know, how can you fact check me? That's wrong. No, they, they signed in. This is an opt-in community of people who are committing to truthfulness. So right now we see a big problem with fact checkers is that politicians who are getting fact checked and other public figures who are getting fact checked are denouncing fact checkers. They're saying, no, the fact checkers are wrong or they're partisan, they're biased, they're you know, Bad, bad. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And this is not happening in the pro-truth pledge because public figures who bought into it are part of the community and they chose to be fact-checked by the community in, in, uh, for the positive reputation boost that they're getting from it. So this is a very effective opt-in community movement. It's a grassroots movement that doesn't require any political intervention. It's a very libertarian, very uh, grassroots-oriented movement. It doesn't require any intervention from the political sphere or anyone else is growing organically by ordinary citizens going and joining it and then public figures going and joining it as well. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, uh, ProTruthPledge.org uh, uh, for the people who just want to make sure that they got that. That's great. You, you mentioned journalists and media. And in the book you talk about mainstream media need, need to be careful about criticizing conservatives conservatives. Um, why do you say that? So mainstream media have sometimes been excessive in criticizing conservatives. So for example, there was an incident in the summer when the Republican Gian, Greg Gianforte, who was a candidate and then elected to the Congress, he assaulted a reporter, Ben Jacobs. Now, after assaulting the reporter, he uh, there were a lot of liberals a lot of people who are in the mainstream media who said, oh, you know, uh, Greg Gianforte is just an example of what Trump does. But we can't hold Trump fully responsible at all for Greg Gianforte's behavior. Greg Gianforte is an individual human being, and you know, he showed some 
uh, lack of control over himself and anger in body slamming, attacking physically his journalist. Trump mm-hmm. never did that. So by saying that Greg Gianforte is, you know, not, is just representing what Trump is doing, uh, there are a lot of people who validly said that, hey, that's an unfair criticism. Now, mm-hmm. unfair criticisms will undermine the credibility of mainstream media. And that will threaten the ability of mainstream media to, in the future, be heard by people who are supporters of Donald Trump. And that's very dangerous for the future of our society if mainstream media's credibility is undermined, if they themselves contribute to the undermining of their credibility. That's why I talk uh, in the book about we need to be much more careful. The mainstream media needs to be much more careful about criticizing conservatives to make sure that this criticism when it is given, is appropriate. Excellent. That is excellent. Uh, Something I didn't expect to see in the book uh, that was uh, 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 good to see uh, and something that I think most people would never think about saying, uh, and that is what you call the one thing that Trump got right on Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So Trump, uh, in the Charlottesville situation, for folks who remember that, there was a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, North Carolina on August 12th, and uh, Donald Trump said there was violence on both sides. Now, I find various forms of white nationalism, racism, and neo-Nazism reprehensible. It's terrible. But Donald Trump's words had some validity. There was not simply violence from the neo-Nazis, from the alt-right, from the far-right. There was also violence from the Antifa from the far left. And when I published that article saying that, hey, Trump is not all wrong, there is certainly some violence from Antifa, even though, and some aggressive violence, they weren't only uh, defending the counter-protesters, they were actually attacking the alt-right people in in Charlottesville. There's a lot of evidence, which I cited in the book, showing that. Mm -hmm. And so, now, he also and the, said and, that there were very fine people on both sides. Remember that quote? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a, that's kind of different than, the, yeah, there was violence on both sides, but violence, but very fine people, one of the things uh, that, that uh, you know, was just a, you know, a, a, yes. a hot I, well, So that's why I said, that's why that is called the one thing Trump got right in Charlottesville. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. So we have a we definitely agree on on that that there's no really such thing as a fine neo-Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I absolutely agree that there's no yeah. there's no <laughs> fine neo-Nazi. No. Yeah. Oh, he's a fine but, racist. I'm sure he's just not uh, you know. Pure <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So 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 that's but I really appreciate that um, because you know based upon our confir- this is really where confirmation bias can play in right because. We could say, look, man, we're just going to paint a, a complete swath around them and generalize everything and make them, the, you know, the halo, uh, uh, the halo and horns and say, hey, these guys are, are, are not neo-Nazis, and so they couldn't be violent. There was no such – and so you go into this state of denial and start creating all of these biases and, false, and falsehoods. Absolutely. So, so that's the big danger, where we don't see people on, quote-unquote, our side – uh, you know, I presume that the large majority, I personally am highly opposed to neo-Nazis, all sorts of racism, 
I presume the vast majority of the listeners are as well. So it's very dangerous when we don't see people on our side as engaging in bad activities when they actually are, as mm-hmm. in problematic activities when they actually are. And Antifa did engage in highly violent activities, provocatively violent activities. And we need to recognize that and say that, you know, hey, Donald Trump was right, that there was violence on both sides, and there was aggressive violence on both sides. Now, he was wrong in many things. He was wrong in not putting more of the blame of violence on the neo-Nazis because they deserved much more of the blame for the violence. He was also wrong in saying there were fine people on both sides. I don't think there were fine people on the racist neo-Nazi side. But in that one thing, he is accurate. And we should not say that he's completely and absolutely wrong because that would, again, undermine our own credibility. So we need to be thoughtful about our own credibility when we engage in these sorts of conversations. Wow, that's incredible. We're going to... We're going to end it here because we, we've got part three coming up. Uh, but, boy, this was really, really, really good, very enlightening, very insightful, uh, definitely food for thought and definitely something that people need to do right now in order to get the True Seekers Handbook, a science-based guide uh, by Dr. Glenn Sapersky. Uh, thank you for this uh, uh, wonderful uh, uh, I don't even think it was a conversation. It was like a lecture. I was like, in, I was in a school <laughs> taking notes in the university program, an advanced study. It was great. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I want you to think about maybe for the part three of our conversation, whether you yourself, as a public figure, would consider taking the Proshus pledge. Yeah, I will definitely go take a look at it and uh, um, uh, check to see if I am as honest and if I can live up to it. <laughs> 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 okay, oh, it's, it's all about it's all about making making an earnest effort, you know, doing oh your reasonable best, and uh, you know, you don't have to be perfect, but you have to try. <laughs> <laughs> that will be absolutely fantastic. So I'm definitely going to do that today. I appreciate you, Doc. Wonderful. Okay, all right, everybody. great to Thanks, everybody. I appreciate you. Take care, everybody. We'll hear from you uh, uh, and talk to you uh, next time on the Fleet Matthews Show. Take care, everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.